this group of misfit Vietnam veterans that always fought criminals. I don't know how or why. But there was always this welding montage, and they had these weird tactics that always panned out. And at the end, Hannibal Smith, kind of the general, he was often musing at the end of the show with a cigar, saying something like, I love it when a plan comes together. And it was just one of those repetitive things, that the plan always seemed to come together. And uh, he loved it when a plan came together. And it's, it is satisfying to, to plan something and then to see it come to pass something that you've only imagined happening or you desire to happen. Um, what's so awesome about our God is the things that he plans, he brings to pass. And he does it in his time and way. And, uh, and God does more than we could plan. We can make a plan, but God's able to, to do so much greater, as we've seen in Paul's life. In Acts chapter 19, Paul determined in his heart, I'm going to go to Rome. That was his plan. I'm going to make it to Rome. But there were eight years or so that passed between him saying, I want to go to Rome and actually going to Rome. And during that time, he was arrested. He had a chance to speak of Christ to kings, you know, to King Agrippa. And, and he was there for two years and confined in Caesarea. He's shipwrecked. That wasn't in his plan. But he's able, through that shipwreck, to go to Malta and to bring the gospel to that nation, that, that island. And, and he's bitten by a viper, and there's, there's all these twists and turns, but ultimately God brought him to Rome. And so we find Paul in Rome, and this conclusion that we'll have today is really the culmination of these last uh, nine chapters or so of the book of Acts, where everything's been leading to Rome, and now Paul is finally in Rome. And there's a saying that says, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. We usually just say, when in Rome. And we'll say, that means like, go with the flow, or do what's natural in that situation. Um, everyone else is doing it, so you should too. Uh, when Paul arrived in Rome, he continued doing exactly the same thing he had been doing leading up to Rome. So he didn't become like the Romans. He had been all things to all men all the way through. And he would follow his pattern of going to the Jews and to presenting the gospel to them. And it didn't matter if he was speaking before King Agrippa or before an unruly mob in Jerusalem. He didn't, he didn't let that future plan of going to Rome and kind of saving himself for Rome when he had all these opportunities. Can you imagine if he had waited to testify of Christ until he went to Rome? How much opportunity would have been missed that, he, that God brought him sovereignly and led him into? He was willing to share Christ on a ship. He was willing to share Christ to other believers that he met along the way and that met with him and escorted him into Rome. And the kind of servant Paul was before he went to Rome was the kind of servant of God he was after arriving in Rome. He was loyal and obedient to Christ. And the plans that you have, the, the desires that are in your heart, how you might serve the Lord someday, don't let that distract you or keep you from being the witness you can be for Jesus right where he has you now when you're not in Rome, so to speak. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are an awesome God, that your plans are amazing, and that you bring them to pass in your way and in your time, and we can trust you. Thank you, Lord, that you choose to use these weak vessels, that you could have uh, had the angels to do your bidding here on earth, and you do use them, but you've chosen to use us as well, 
as your children, as your ambassadors. And thank you for the gospel, Lord, the power of it to change us and to transform our lives and to give us purpose and meaning and hope, not just in this life, but in the life to come, that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, Lord, for atoning for our sins, for giving us a hope that does not fade away, and for Jesus, who's coming back. We thank you for him and for all that he's done. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray that we would be filled with your spirit today to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 28, verse 16. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. The ship had sailed from Malta and up towards Rome. And ultimately, he reached his destination with that Christian escort we read about last week. And he, he received some special treatment. He, was, he didn't have to stay in the barracks or in the prison. He was able to stay in a house, kind of like house arrest. Except he was chained to a prison, uh, he was chained as a prisoner to a guard who would keep an eye on him. It was pretty easy to keep an eye on him when he's connected to you. And that would be, uh, there would be a, a shift of soldiers that would come through to guard him. And as we'll see, this provided so many opportunities for Paul to have visitors, for him to share even with the soldiers. And Philippians 4.22 strongly implies that the Lord was able to make disciples of Paul of Caesar's household. So Paul was able to access people that uh, he wouldn't have had he only been in the prison. Paul wanted to go to Rome, but God not only promised, you're going to go to Rome, but he says, you're going to testify before Caesar. Paul had never thought, or he never said, I want to testify before Caesar. I want to talk to the head man himself. No, he just wanted to go to Rome. But God's like, no, you're going to, you're going to talk to Caesar. And he also led people to Christ in Caesar's household. So God's plans are bigger than our dreams. We have this dream, this idea, this thing that we want to see come to pass. God can bring that to pass, and he has other things, too, that he wants to accomplish, which I love about our God. He is awesome in every way. Verse 17, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hand of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I was I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. After arriving in Rome, it said he had been there three days before he did according to his custom to call a meeting with the leaders of the Jewish people, those people in that region. And as a Jew, Paul had a shared past with them. He had a connection, and he utilized his connection with the aim of sharing Jesus. He didn't cease to love or to reach out to the Jews because he had been formally accused, attacked, and imprisoned by them, right? He was imprisoned because the Jews accused him and said he's worthy of death. According to our law, this man should not be permitted to live. And God had called Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles, but that still didn't keep him from reaching out to the Jews. 
And this is a good thing to think about. What connections do we have with people or groups that we could use to further the gospel of Jesus? It could be a family connection, a work connection, shared experiences, hobbies, interests. But Paul wasn't going to limit the scope of his gospel teaching to people in his circle. He wanted to find people where Jesus could become the new common ground they shared. People he had never even met before. He's like, and really, Jesus, he, the unity we have in Jesus is more than anything on this planet could give us, whether it's a family connection or a work colleague. The connection we have through Christ, a spiritual permanent connection through Christ and his spirit. I'm so impressed by the boldness of Paul. He found ways to connect with people, to share the gospel, Jews and Gentiles. Because he was called to the Gentiles, he didn't exclude Jews. And because he was a Jew, he didn't exclude Gentiles. He went to everyone and sought to find a connection through Christ. So when the leaders of the Jews in Rome gathered, he defends himself. Imagine being called to see Paul and uh, someone that perhaps they knew had been a Pharisee, and they find him chained. They're like, what's this about? You know, if if I was going to lead a Bible study or something, and I have a a prison guard here, and he's chained to me, you go like, what does this guy have to say? What's your story? What's going on? Uh, so they arrive. He's in chains. Being among Jews, he doesn't emphasize his Roman citizenship. He doesn't talk about that. He used it at times for his benefit, but at this point. He's trying to connect with these people on that level. And he says, I haven't done anything against the Jewish people or the nation. He was a devout man. He held to the traditions and scriptures in high regard. He says, I was arrested in in Jerusalem. I was kept by the Romans. They didn't find fault with me. But when the Jews had a problem with that, I was forced to appeal to Caesar because I didn't want to file a countersuit against our nation. I've got nothing against the Jews or our people. It seems that maintaining good relations with the Jews was more important to Paul than his own freedom. So instead of trying to go through litigation and to appeal his sentence, he says, I appeal to speak to Caesar about it. And then he concludes, For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. So cool that Paul wanted to see them. He wanted to speak with them. He doesn't, I've got a message for you. He's like, I want to talk with you. I want to have a discussion. Because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And that hope of Israel phrase is really compelling. It occurs two times in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it means that word hope is something waited for or confidence. Now, the first mentions in Jeremiah 14, 8, but if you could turn to Jeremiah 17, verses 12 through 15, we'll read a little bit about that. Jeremiah 17, 12 through 15. And let me tell you, these verses preach. They preach Jesus. We could just stop right here and just preach on the hope of Israel from this passage because it's so loaded with uh, messianic overtones and who Jesus is. Jeremiah 17, 12 is where we'll start. Let 
It says, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Isn't there a lot of awesome allusions there? It just speaks about that everlasting throne upon which Jesus and Creator, King of Kings, the one who inhabits eternity, sits. That he is the fountain of living water, right? He's the one who said, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And I'll give you the Holy Spirit that'll cause living waters to spring up into everlasting life. He's the one who cried out on the great day of the feast. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is speaking of Jesus. He is our healer. He is our savior. And when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the people gave him and sang hosannas and shouted for his glory. And if they had not shouted, he says, those rocks that I've created, they would cry out. The scripture was fulfilled by the things that he did and said. And it was the the doubters and the naysayers that said, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Well, who is Jesus? He is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory. And those naysayers and doubters, they need look no further. The word has come. He has spoken. The Messiah and Savior of nations, he is come. And he is enthroned. He died on the cross for sinners. And he is risen. And so he says, guys, I'm chained for the hope of Israel. They would have known, if they were familiar with their Old Testament scriptures, what he's referring to, that passage. And I love that the chains that Paul wore could not rob him of the hope that he had in Jesus. His situation and, and the circumstances, they were not, they could not rob him of that hope. Now we live in a hopeless world and we face hopeless, impossible situations all the time. And let's be honest, it's very easy to lose sight of the everlasting hope that we have. We know we have it somewhere in the future, but we're not experiencing it now. We don't always. We might have maybe a, you know, a wave of hope. There could be a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, that we, we feel like there could be a positive change. But that might be fleeting and we might despair. Ours is a blessed hope. It is a glorious hope. It is an enduring and everlasting hope, and it's one that, because it's everlasting, we can receive and walk in it now, walk in light of it. Could you please turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This is after 1 and 2 Timothy in the New Testament. We can have an expectation and a confidence that God will redeem our present circumstances for good and will result in a glorious future. Now, it may not feel that way. It may not appear that way. But we can know, based upon what God has said and who he is, that he will bring it to pass. This hope that we have is not something just to look forward to, but something that's to guide and to aid us now. Titus 2.11, 
for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So it's not something in the future, it's something that's happened. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The grace of God that brings salvation is available to all people, Jew, Gentile, prisoners, and freemen. There's hope for Jesus in all, and he's redeemed us. He has purified us. And it doesn't matter who's, who is in the government, um, how corrupt society becomes, how great the persecution of the saints becomes. We have a blessed and glorious hope in our Savior who is coming for us who has come, it has appeared, and he will be appearing. And we can rejoice in that knowledge. New cars have a lot of great features. If you've ever gone from having like an older car to getting a new car, it's pretty amazing at the things that cars can do that they didn't used to be able to do. You have to bring your cassette tape or your 8-track. Does that hit anybody here? <laughs> you know, And it was cool back then. Now it's like, I don't even need a wire to answer the phone in my car. It's just pretty amazing. And and you might forget or, or be ignorant of. You can be ignorant of some of the things that the car can do. Or you might forget about, oh yeah, I have that cup holder right here. I always rely on that one, but I have this one and that one. And these other things, like all the stuff that can break. Um, but see... Our hope and our future, it's not just like an accessory to salvation, something to, to when we're having a hard time to rely upon. That's kind of like forgetting, uh, we might think of it that way, as forgetting an aspect of Christianity. But really, forgetting the hope that we have in Jesus is like forgetting that you have a car. It goes way beyond that. It's like forgetting your whole means of transport. We have to hold on to the hope because Jesus, our hope, he holds us. He has us. He has our circumstances under control, and we can believe and trust in him. So it's not just for our safety or convenience that we have this hope. It's an enduring hope that sustains us because Jesus is our hope. Back to Acts 28, verse 21. They respond to his defense. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire what you have to, what you, for what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. The Jewish leaders, they hadn't received any word about Paul's coming, anything about his case. And one and it's a bit surprising because they had been very vocal in pursuing and accusing him. But from another view, it's not really that surprising because that ship that he was on shipwrecked. And maybe they thought, good riddance. But God had preserved him. And they happened to shipwreck at Malta where there was another ship that was able to bring them up to Rome right after winter. So maybe they thought, wow, he's there already. So they there was no connection between him and them anymore. And these Jewish leaders, they were like, well, we haven't heard anything about you. We'd love to hear what you have to say. We have heard something bad about this sect, though. 
pretty much people speak badly about it, and that was Christianity, uh, which, as Paul would explain, is not a sect. It's really the natural conclusion that you draw from believing in God and trusting in the scriptures and seeing them fulfilled in the life of Jesus and having him die for the sins of the world and then to rise from the dead, like he's going to lay it all out for them. And speaking against Jesus is really, it's something actually promised. We see that Simon in the temple when Jesus was taken in to be circumcised on the eighth day. There was this elderly gent who was there. And the Lord had promised that he would not see death until he had seen the Savior, the Messiah. And it says in Luke 2.34, it says, Then Simeon, Excuse me, not Simon, Simeon. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. This child is destined for the fall and rising. We always say rise and fall, right? We don't say fall and rising. But he says destined for the fall and rising. Jesus would fall and then rise again. See, we think you have to rise before you can fall. Well, he fell, but he's risen. And it was a sign which would be spoken against. Jesus did many signs. Even being born of a virgin was a sign. But the sign spoken against would be this resurrection. That was the ultimate sign that Jesus pointed to to prove his authority. They said, what authority do you have to command us to to cleanse the temple? And he'd say, you know, Three days, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise again. That falling and rising would be proof of his, that he's the Messiah, that he is God made flesh, and that he has power over sin and death to save all who trust in him. Continuing now in Acts 28, 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. There was a pointed day when many came to Paul to hear concerning the hope of Israel. Paul was an expert in the law of Moses and led by the Spirit. He goes through the law, he goes through the prophets, and he expounds, it says solemnly, from morning until evening. It was a long discourse. I would have loved to have seen the transcript of that one. And he does as Peter exhorted in 1 Peter 3.14, where it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Paul had done the right thing, but people saw him as an evildoer. Have you ever done the right thing, but were punished for it? Things were spoken, uh, you were accused of doing the wrong thing when you had done what was right? Now that doesn't feel like a blessing, does it? But it says that we are blessed when we do what is good and we suffer for righteousness' sake.
we see that the Lord had a special place. He had sanctified the Lord in his heart. He was ready to give a defense for the hope that was in him. Jesus Christ was his Lord. It wasn't Caesar that was his Lord. He was not going to be ruled by these rulers of the Jews. He was trusting the Lord and speaking the truth in love. And in meekness and fear, he gave a defense for the hope that was in him. There was nothing in his life that these Orthodox Jews could have found to to give them an excuse not to listen to the things he was saying. He was blameless according to the law. And after he made this lengthy speech, it said some were persuaded and others disbelieved. Now the word for persuaded, it doesn't necessarily mean that they demonstrated faith, but they agreed with what he was saying. They said, well, what you're saying is true. Um, Others, they disagreed full stop. They were not open to anything that he had to say. And that shows me that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can teach people and share the truth from the scriptures, but it doesn't mean that it's going to uh, result in them believing and trusting Jesus. We tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves to say the right thing. You know, like just we want the perfect silver bullet verse for every uh, rejection, everything that might be put forth against the scripture that we would have it. And we should be uh, versed in the scriptures. We should know, be able to give an answer for the hope that's in us. But really, it's not, we should never put hope in our preparation or our knowledge to bring people to Jesus because God does that. There's never been anyone saved without the Holy Spirit. He has to be involved in that process, and he wants to be because it says that he's, he is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. It's men who reject the truth. It's people who refuse to admit their need for forgiveness, and they prefer darkness over light. They made that choice, but God has given everyone the chance for salvation. We can be ready and with meekness share the hope that's in us, But only God can open blind eyes. Only he can soften hearts. Only he can raise the dead to life. And we have to commit that into his hands and not worry about it. Obsess over what we have to say or what we have to do. There were times where Jesus said, you're going to appear before magistrates after you've been arrested, but give no thought to what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit in that hour will tell you what to speak. Now, that would be a huge challenge, right? You imagine being in a cell, and you're like, you're on tomorrow at 9 a.m., the magistrate who who decides whether you live or die. And in your mind, you have to say, well, you know what? God decides whether I live or die, and I'm going to trust God. And I'm not going to worry about what I should say or how I should defend myself or the angles that I'm going to take to try to persuade them to see things my way. The best preparation in that case is really prayer. Seek the Lord. Rest on Him. So our faith should not rest in our knowledge or ability to deliver the facts, but in Jesus Christ who raises the dead to life. Because not everyone that listened to Jesus, Peter, Paul, these other great preachers responded in faith. Verse 25, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, 
lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. His address had this mixed response from the listeners. And instead of softening his stance, as some might be tempted to do, imploring the people concerning the love and grace and forgiveness of God, he doubles down with a word of rebuke from Isaiah, doesn't he? I mean, think of that. Would you like to have these words applied to you? Someone's speaking to you and you go, well, you know, I really don't believe that. Well, did Isaiah say of you? (laughs) Whoa, okay. Paul was not interested in uh, entertaining goats with theology. He wanted to seek out and feed the sheep of the flock of God the ones that Jesus had purchased with his blood, the ones who would respond. He's like, hey, is there anyone here that will hear the word of God and listen to it and believe it? Now, what he quotes from is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And in that, it's a famous chapter where he has a vision of God. And his lips are cleansed, his sin is purged, and and God's like, well, who's going to go for us? Who shall we send? And he's like, here I am, send me. And then God, in response to that, says in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And he says, well, how long? How long do you want me to keep giving this message? And he says, until Israel is so destroyed that there's nobody left. That's when you can stop giving this message. You keep giving this message until it's a ruin. That's when you stop, when there's no one else to talk to. I know the Jews were not pleased to hear this applied to them. Isaiah, he was called to share the the word of the Lord that there was judgment coming. God would use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge God's people for their sin. And that would be a consequence that he would bring. And the consequence of them refusing to hear the message was dullness and blindness. Did God want to heal the relationship between he and his people? Absolutely. That's why he sent his prophets. But he knew that they would not listen to his prophets. Because he knew them. The proud, hardened, and foolish response of the people would prevent their own salvation. We like to think God would give us a message because everyone's going to listen to it and believe it. In this case, God gave him a message because the people were going to reject it, and it would condemn them. It would be their own choice to be condemned because they did not hearken to the word spoken. And so that's very confronting, isn't it? That God would have us speak the gospel to somebody so that they have the opportunity for salvation, but at the same time to place themselves under condemnation for not responding to it. Now that's in the Lord's hands. He wants to save people and we should want to see people saved. I don't believe we should be uh, as as Jonah who who wished everyone would be dead. Like he's like, I want them to be destroyed. That's why I don't want to give the message. Right? So because we want everyone to be destroyed by the wrath of God, we don't want to say anything. No, we want them to be saved. But if they refuse the message, well, they will become increasingly dull and hardened to it of their own choosing. And you know what? God can break the dull, uh, hardened heart. He is able to 
He says, is not my word like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And you don't have to shout it and have volume for God's word to have power to affect the life of another person. So Paul's motivation for saying this was the same as Isaiah, that they would be brought into a place of repentance and confession of their sin before God. But their refusal to receive it, it showed their true spiritual condition because they were children of Abraham, right? They kept the law. They were proud to be God's chosen people. They were children of Abraham by blood, but they were not children of God through atonement by the blood of Jesus. So Paul concludes his discourse in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. God invites the Jews, he invites the Gentiles to be born again, to receive salvation through Jesus Christ and the gospel. And there's a lot of parables Jesus told that illustrated this really well. There was a wealthy landowner, he's got friends, and he says, I'm going to invite you and you and you to the, the wedding or to the great feast that I prepared. And in those days, you would say, yeah. You would respond to the invitation right away. And then they would come back later and say, food's ready, party's started, and you'd have to drop whatever you were doing and go and go to the feast. So everyone had said, yes, yes, we'll go, we'll go. And so the landowner's like, great, you know, we're going to get a spread going. We're going to get some food, some barbecue. We're, it's going to be great. You know, some vegetarian stuff too. And uh, it was just for everyone, right? There was stuff to eat, drink. It was tremendous. He's got this whole spread on. He sends out his servants to the people who said yes. And then when they arrive, they go, oh, you know, oh, sorry, you can't make it. You know, I, I bought some property. I haven't even looked at it yet, but I want to look at it. So, you know, the party will have to wait. And the master's like, okay, I'm not going to let all this stuff go to waste. Go out, find anybody, invite them. I want people here. I want people to enjoy this this party, this meal we're going to have. And then in one parable, it's like, all right, we've 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 gone and seen everybody, and we still have room. And he says, go into the alleys. Get the homeless people. Get the sick and the blind and the maimed. Bring them in so that we can have this feast together. So the parable, the picture is, God had called his people. They said, oh yeah, God will do everything you say. We believe your word. But when Jesus came and he called out to them, they said, we're not going to take that invitation. No, that's not the way we think it should be. And so he says, okay, I'm going to go to the others. And numbered among them, the blind and the lame and the homeless. And that's us. That's the Gentiles. That's me. Gentile, I had no claim to the commonwealth of Christ, no claim to the kingdom of God, and though I was alien to the grace of God, he says, will you respond to my offer for salvation? Will you come and eat with me? Will you repent of your sins and follow me? Are you thirsty? Do you want to drink? Come to me and drink. Don't try to find just water anywhere. Come to me, drink of me. And Jesus has done the same for you. He's called out to you, wherever you were. I don't know where Jesus first called you, whether you were sitting down in a room or you were in a gutter, and the Lord just spoke to you, and you realized, wow, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and Jesus is my only hope.
What was the difference between the Jews who receive the gospel and those that reject? What was the difference in those Gentiles that would listen? Well, one little word with big implications, faith. Faith is key. The writer of Hebrews, he alludes to the Hebrews who died in the wilderness before entering into the promised land because of unbelief. And you think about what these people were exposed to. They saw the wonders and signs in Egypt. They had been led by the presence of God in a cloud by day and a fire by night. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They had eaten manna every day that fell in the morning. They drank of the water that came from the rock that Moses struck. And yet, when he said, enter in, they would not because of unbelief. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, please, starting in verse 1. Hebrews 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So when we hear the word and it's not mixed with faith, if there's no faith in us to respond, then it's not going to be profitable to us. Faith is a choice. It's trust evidenced by obedience. It begins with the assent of the mind. There's that agreement where it says some people were persuaded. There was a mental agreement with what Paul had said, but they weren't yet willing to place their faith in Jesus Christ to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. After the ascent of the mind, it's then submission of the will, where we lay down our will and we say, your will be done. And then the fact that we trust God will be evidenced through obedience. So there's some key parts of faith and evidence of faith. It's being persuaded by God and relying upon him. Two people can do the same action, but only one of them requires faith or has is a demonstration of faith, like moving house. A lot of us have moved house before. Didn't necessarily take an act of faith to move house, but Abraham moving house did because God had spoken to him and said, leave your house and leave your family and go to a land which I will show you. And it says Abraham believed God, and he did it. And then later, when God said of you, I'm going to make a great nation, Though his wife was barren, he trusted God and believed him and said God accounted it to him as righteousness. So his, he was a man of faith just because he obeyed God. Obeying God and following a law does not mean that you have faith necessarily because you can move house without faith, right? But... Faith is key to believing and walking in the gospel. It's so critical. As a believer, do you know you can rob yourself of joy and rest and hope because we refuse to obey? We refuse to trust God. And so God has this everlasting hope for us, but if we're unwilling to exercise faith, then we won't get the benefits that God has provided. 
Paul chose to trust and obey God. He rejoiced in the hope of Israel even when he was disregarded and when the gospel message was refused. So what a great picture of like, well, guys, if you don't want to hear or talk about the gospel anymore, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. That's that word that made them leave again. Um, weren't interested. But what's really cool, let's finish the book, Acts 28, verse 30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. For two years, his own rented house, he he has a court date, but he doesn't know when it's going to be. Um, and during that two-year period, he he hosted many visitors, and I would... I would believe that there were some people that he spoke to on this on that particular day who came back. Maybe even like Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. There were some of them who said, hey, you know, can I meet up with you? Oh, yeah, no problem. And he received all who came to him. During this two-year period, he wrote what are commonly called the pastoral epistles. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote those books while incarcerated in home arrest. And I think it's so phenomenal. Here's Paul. He's chained. He's unable to travel. Uh, but And he's in house arrest. But the letters, just letters he wrote to somebody else, to churches inspired by the Spirit, they've impacted the church and individuals ever since. I can't imagine typing out an email and having it read like 2,000 years later as a source of comfort and joy and salvation. Like, oh, yeah, that's so encouraging when I read that. We'd be like, what are they saying? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but man, God is able to use these things. He's able to do amazing things. And so Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter. If they came to Paul, he received them. He spoke with them, but not just about anything. It says he preached the kingdom of God and he taught things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. And we see that singular focus and thrust of his ministry, that Later in life, he did not veer off onto a particular tangent or to some point of emphasis. He kept preaching Christ, things that concerned Christ, the kingdom of God. He just stayed grounded in the basics. And I'm like, you know what? That's what I want to be. I want to be like him as far as staying true to the scripture and to these primary doctrines all the way through, living them out, walking in light of them. And there's so much room to grow. Um, we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need to keep rem reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, what he saved us from and what he saved us for, these good works to enter into. He's shown such grace and forgiveness to us. We ought to extend that to one another. And we have new opportunities to do this all the time. There's nothing more practical and necessary in the life of a Christian than the gospel. It's not just where you start your path with Jesus. It is the path that we're to be walking on. The gospel wasn't just a doctrine that Paul was familiar with. He could just explain it, just wrote. He's like, all right, well, this is what I like to tell people, and he just kind of rattled it off. Like he knew it, but he lived it, and he owned it. Could you please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll finish in this passage. Something he wrote to Timothy. 
And I love that Paul owned the gospel because Jesus owned him. He says, this is my gospel. It was precious to him. And because it was precious, he shared it with others. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? If we have something precious, we we tend to treasure it and keep it for ourselves. But just like that that decadent dessert, you're like, you got to try this. I'm on a diet. No, 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 you just just a bite. You have to try it. You know, there's things that you go, you have to try this product or you have to try this thing because it's so good. It's so useful. Well, that should be the gospel for us where it's so sweet to our taste. It's so amazing what God has done and is doing in our lives that we just can't help but offer it to anybody for any reason. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. My gospel. Is it your gospel? Do you own it? Does it own you? You've been saved by it, but do you hold on to it? Is it of just primary importance in your life? And he says, I've endured all things, suffering trouble, seen as evil, being chained, for the sake of the elect, people that he hadn't even met yet necessarily. He was willing to suffer these things, to to have that fellowship with them, to see them come into the life that Jesus purchased for them with his own blood. And it's like, he was kind of like a fisherman. He cast his net wide to catch any that he possibly could. He wanted them to come to faith. He wanted them to know Jesus. And I love that though Paul's in chains, the word of God was not chained. It doesn't matter if people try to put controls and, I guess, restrictions upon the word of God. His word is not changed. It will not fail. It continues to save. So let's believe in the power of the gospel. We have the hope of Israel. Let's cling to him. Let's Trust in Him. You have faith to receive the gospel. Do you have faith to live it out and to share it? He's given us this hope. And it's a hope that we can share. Having tasted and seen that God is good, let's be uh, active in sharing that truth with others. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul, that he was your man. And he owned the gospel. He was a man just led by you in remarkable ways. Lord, I pray in all of our lives, may the gospel be of primary importance, that it's it's Jesus in us. It's a hope that we have that we can walk in today and we can share it with others. Lord, help us to be those who who revel and rejoice in your sacrifice for us, that you would display your love in such a way you would demonstrate it and that you would even chasten us, Lord, that you would care enough to correct us and instruct us in the way of truth. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to give an answer for the hope that's in us with meekness and fear, that we wouldn't deviate from this primary need to to walk in the truth of the gospel 
and to share it faithfully with others. We thank you that uh, no matter what happens to us, Lord, you are sovereign and you are in control and we can believe your word that it's true. So, Lord, we praise and thank you. We exalt your name. Uh, even if we are spoken against, Lord, may we be those who speak for you and for others to come to knowledge of Jesus. Thank you again for the message of salvation that we have, that it's not just words, but it's new life through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.